Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Um, our, our guest today is Karen Tumulty, who is a columnist for the Washington Post and whose Twitter biography describes her as trying to adapt. So, Karen, aren't we all? Exactly. That has been my Twitter biography for the last 12 years, and I still haven't gotten there. No, I was wondering whether it was trying to adapt to the Trump world or trying to adapt to the coronavirus, but it's been that's sort of a, just a cosmic existential thing trying to adapt. Uh, I want to talk to you about you have a new book coming out in, in April that I really want to talk about the triumph of Nancy Reagan that is getting rave reviews uh, being described as uh, the definitive biography. And you and I were just chatting about uh, the, the, the launch at the Reagan Library. I, and I do want to talk about that because... I, I do feel a, a real impulse now to step outside the the moment we're living in right now, the crazy, because you get the same sense that we've lived through four years of, of crazy. And at the moment, we were kind of hoping to return to normalcy. The crazy is still awfully, awfully, awfully strong. Well, you know, and as I was working on the book and did spend a lot of time in the very cold, uncomfortable research room at the, the Reagan Library, you know, while the Trump administration is happening all around me, I mean, what, what what I was really struck with was, you know, how how things in earlier administrations, you know, operated according to processes. I mean, you could you could go through the files and find all the memos people were writing as they were trying to decide what their policy was on something. The speech writing files were just fascinating because you could see these policy debates you know, being waged over every word of a speech. Um, so it, it's just a reminder of the way White Houses in the past have have normally operated. So I'm sure you've given some thought to this. What is the Trump library, the Trump presidential library going to be like? You know, I cannot <laughs> even imagine because... Um, First of all, I'm skeptical that they are going to abide by the law that requires, you know, presidents and, and their advisors and their aides to save every little scrap of paper, um, every little, you know, every little thing that he tweets or, you know, every text. All of those things are supposed to go into the National Archives, and it is up to an archivist there to go through them and decide what should be in the public record. But again, I, just the, the processes there were so chaotic, but I also don't believe that, you know, they are necessarily going to abide by all the rules and regulations, which will be a great loss to history, I must say. No, I, that, that, that's, that's a great point because you have to have respect for the office of the presidency. If, and if you did have respect for it, you would have respect for the processes, which they didn't. And secondly, you have to have a great deal of respect for history and the importance of the historical record. And clearly these folks don't don't have that either. So so who knows what that's going to be? That's going to be like, OK, so let's talk about where we're at at the moment. And I want to talk about uh, Neera Tandon, who looks like her nomination is at best on life support. You have a column about that uh, today, about the hypocrisy of the Republicans. But let's talk about yesterday's hearing about January 6th. Um, I thought it was very, very interesting listening to the testimony, although I have to say that I kept hearing the, the, the phrase intelligence failure over and over again. And I guess I'm, I'm frustrated by it. I don't know what your reaction was. I'm, I'm frustrated by it because if anybody was really paying attention at all, 
reading the paper, following social media, even reading Trump's own Twitter feed, you had to know something big was going to happen on January 6th. And I still cannot get my head around the fact that they did not fully expect what happened when it was right there in front of them. Yeah, when the president himself is promising will be wild, uh, you would think so. And I was struck, you know, the parallels are not precise, but I was struck by how much I was reminded of 9-11. Even the phrase failure of imagination was being used. And also that the, the information was really siloed. The the FBI sent out a warning to people at the DC police department, to people at, in the Capitol police, and the, the warnings never got to the people who needed to receive them. And you, it was also striking how everybody in this hearing was trying to foist off blame on everybody else. So I, I think that what, it, what strikes me is there is a real imperative now to appoint an independent fact-finding commission here and, you know, hopefully even just take it out of the hands of politicians and and put it in experts. No, and I hope that they do that. Um, But that assumes that there are people who will be respected by both sides of the aisle. And considering the kind of gaslighting that we're seeing now, I I don't know. I don't know that we're capable of doing something like the 9-11 Commission. I mean, have you sort of run through in your mind? So which which Republican and which Democratic co-chairman would not be subject to the usual, you know, MAGA attacks? I remember when Robert Mueller was was appointed, we all thought, well, here's a guy who was so unimpeachable. There's no way that they're going to be able to attack his reputation. And, well, we know what happened. Yeah, I would hope that they would look for people who were respected and maybe are retired, whoever is today's equivalent of Tom Kane and and Lee Hamilton, maybe you know people who who have experience in politics, but who are essentially out of the game. Yeah, I'm just trying to think who that is, whether or not we've passed that era. I mean, I was actually trying to run through some names. You know, Tom Ridge, the you know former Homeland Security Secretary, Governor of Pennsylvania, but I don't think Trump world would accept him. So yeah, um, Mitch Daniels. I mean, Mitch, I, I, well, I don't know. that would no, that would be that would be a good choice. Okay, so I don't want to dance around this. I mean, the low point of yesterday's hearing was the performance by my home state senator, uh, the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin, Ron John, um, Ron Anon. Um, and I, I have in my newsletter, I said, spoiler alert, I, I just, I, I do not know anymore what's going on inside Ron Johnson's head. I, I, I used to be able to come up with a very elaborate explanations where, you know, you need to understand this, or I think this is what he's thinking. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I just don't know anymore. So I'd be interested in your take. But here's the way that Ron, uh, Senator Ron Johnson spent much of his time reading an article from a conspiracy theorist in from The Federalist. I'm not kidding. This is this is Ron John from yesterday. Thousands of people I passed or who passed me along Constitution Avenue, some were indignant and contemptuous of Congress, but not one appeared angry or incited to riot. Many of the marchers were families with small children. Many were elderly, overweight, or just plain tired or frail. Traits not typically attributed to the riot prone. Many wore pro-police shirts or carried pro-police black and blue flags. Although the crowd represented a broad cross-section of Americans, mostly working class by their appearance and manner of speech, some people stood out. A very few didn't share the jovial, friendly, earnest demeanor of the great majority. Some obviously didn't fit in, and he describes four different 
types of people, plainclothes militants, agents provocateurs, fake Trump protesters, and then disciplined, uniformed column of attackers. I think these are the people that uh, probably planned this. Mm. He goes on, the D.C. Metropolitan Police were their usual professionally detached selves, standing on curbs or at street crossings and exchanging an occasional greeting for marchers. When we crossed 1st Street Northwest to enter the Capitol grounds where the Capitol Police had jurisdiction, I noticed no police at all. Several marchers expressed surprise. The openness seemed like a courtesy gesture from Congress, which controls security. So then he goes on to um, you know, read about the, the, the allegations about Antifa provocateurs and the possibility this was this was a false flag. And what really strikes me, Karen, is is, is the way that this this attack took place just a little more than a month ago. And you still and you have some of these folks like Senator Johnson and others who are already trying to drop into the memory hole or to engage in historical revisionism that really is sort of like, you know, gaslighting on steroids because we saw what we saw. Right. I mean, we, we know what happened on January 6th. We, we we've seen the images. We, we we've seen the criminal cases. And yet you have a United States senator still floating this idea that it was provocateurs and Antifa uh, Antifa folks dressed up in MAGA wear uh, staging a false flag operation. Well, and, you know, all you have to do is look at the people who've been arrested and charged of crimes from that day. Um, They are not Antifa. They are not false flag. These were people who have strong histories as diehard Trump supporters. But, But I also love the idea that you know, there's a there's a way to peg who a, an insurrectionist is. You know, oh, that person is overweight. They can't possibly, you know, they can't possibly be involved in something like this. This was just a happy family outing for most of these people. For those of us, anybody who has seen any of the footage of that day knows that this is what Ron Johnson is describing here is a completely alternate reality. Yeah, and you have, I guess, Dinesh D'Souza was also on one of the shows uh, last night describing people sort of out for a walk. So uh, it, it is it is remarkable how you can bend reality these days, and um, especially when, when you have these images. I mean, there's so many images of the Trump flag and the Trump supporters and, and the president himself saying, I, I love you. And then there's Ron Johnson saying, how do we actually know that these are Trump supporters? <laughs> what? Just know these were just people out for a walk. This was just people with baby strollers. no. Um, we've all seen the attacks on the cops. Um, A.B. Stoddard, our friend A.B. Stoddard from Bill Clare Politics, was on Brian Williams' show last night and uh, talked talked about this and, 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 and the role that Ron Johnson is now playing. Is, can we play a short cut of that? Right, and I think uh, of Holly and Cruz, I, I don't think they could hold a candle today to Ron Johnson. Um, whose new nickname, um, we have to credit our friend Charlie Sykes, is Ron Anon, because he is so intentionally heading straight into a tunnel of um, delusional conspiracy lies that he knows are not true in order to fend off primary challenges next year in Wisconsin when he's up again. Well, two two things. Number one, I... I, I... I use the term Ron Anon, but I, I don't think I invented it. I think I borrowed it from some local Republican activists in Wisconsin. So I want to give them credit. And second, I don't think that Ron Johnson is worried about a primary challenge next year because I, I don't I don't know what he's doing. I mean, I seriously, Karen, I, I I when I look at Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, I know where they're going. I mean, I know 
what Josh Hawley wants to do. He wants to, he wants that mega lane. He wants to run in 2024. Same thing with Ted Cruz, Ron Johnson. I, you know, I'm, I'm, you have a theory. I, well, it, it I, may not be too late to trademark Cuba Ron, but um, oh, he's, I don't. And I, I'm with you. I'm mystified as to where this is coming from. I remember coming out to Wisconsin to uh, cover his first race against Russ Feingold. And he really struck me then, and tell me if I'm wrong, as sort of a conventional businessman, yeah. outsider candidate. Um, kind of new at politics, but but you know, kind of compelling as a candidate. And I just don't see where this is coming from. No, I don't. Um, but and I would like to know who is he listening to? What is he reading? Uh, you know, when I first knew him, he was pretty much a Wall Street Journal editorial page reader. This is before Trump. And that that was that would be how you describe his in a in a in a nutshell, that's how you describe his his philosophy. And now what is he doing? Reading Gateway Pundit? Uh, is he on reading Infowars? Is he reading The Federalist? I, I just, I honestly don't know. Uh, but again, this is part of this weird sort of subculture that we have on the right. The the inability to, the the inability to confront reality. Well, actually, that's, that's, that's putting it too mildly, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's an investment in this big lie about the election, and they're not letting go. And you know that when when Trump speaks at CPAC over the weekend, he's going to say the election was stolen from him. Right. And, and he knows that millions of Americans are going to believe that in the absence of any evidence whatsoever. But I can't help but think that this is a you know, the, these people are really, you know, they are in cement with these positions. Yeah. But um, but I also think that this is going to become a smaller and smaller hardcore bunch of folks. And this is not a path for the Republican Party, which has won what? The popular vote in only one election since 1988 to, to build a, a true majority, a, a governing coalition. No, I think you're right. I think that these things kind of marginalize the party. And and so I, I do think that there's that narrative out there that, you know, that, you know, Trumpism is resurgent when in fact, I haven't looked at the most recent polls, but isn't Trump's approval rating in the in the thirties now? That that was those were the last numbers I looked at, yeah. and um, you know, and, and he did not in Gallup. He didn't have a single second of his presidency where his approval was in positive territory. So one of the interesting things that that I've been watching, of course, has, has been what's been happening at the state level, and we just found out today that, uh, or maybe yesterday that the Virginia Republican Party has decided that it's not going to have a primary election to choose its statewide candidates. They're just going to have a, they're not even going to have a caucus. Is this, is this real? Am I getting this right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm saying it, I'm thinking this can't be true. They're going to have a drive-through voting, drive-through voting at one location at Liberty University. This sounds like a cartoon. Yeah, that's not terribly centrally located either. That's about as far as from the sort of moderate suburbs of Northern Virginia as you can get. Well, the party has been using, has been picking its nominee for many years by a convention. Yeah. And interestingly, that in normal or normaler times has produced some nominees who were really pretty far to the right kind of fringe characters. Now, uh, it has been, in a lot of respects, the, the party establishment that is urging 
a convention because they're afraid of what a primary would produce. Oh, my. Uh, well, this is also one of those states that used to be reliably Republican and now is, continues to trend Democratic. Well, this is how they got Denver Riggleman, by the way, the, the former Republican congressman who's been a guest here. They they abolished the the convention or the caucus and they just had a drive through vote at the at the at a church of with with a pastor was was a critic of him. And they so they got rid of Denver Riggleman in this very very low turnout election and. I don't know. I, there's the, the the possibility that uh, Virginia could could nominate a real crackpot as well as continues to, to continues to rise. Speaking, by the way, though, of this gaslighting, uh, did you hear Tucker Carlson last night? I did not. He- I heard uh, about it. Okay, but- I, I, have, I have a soundbite. Now, the thing about R- Ron Johnson, I, I I honestly don't know whether there's some larger plan here. I, I I don't know what he what he's thinking. Tucker Carlson is a is a case is a different case because. He could make a difference. He could tell that MAGA Fox News listening crowd, you know, hey, don't go this way. This don't don't adapt these crazy ways and, and things like that. Uh, he's very very smart. He knows how he's positioning himself. So basically, he's he's now saying there is no such thing as QAnon. This was him last night. So it's worth finding out where the public is getting all this false information, this disinformation, as we'll call it. So we checked. We spent all day trying to locate the famous QAnon, which in the end we learned is not even a website. If it's out there, we could not find it. Then we checked Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter feed because we have heard she traffics in disinformation, seen and told us, but nothing there. Nothing there. These are not the droids you look for. Well, if it doesn't have a website, it must not exist. Um, (laughs) You know, I can actually remember a time when people would tell me to keep an eye on Tucker Carlson because he was going to be his generation's heir to William F. Buckley. Um, you're right. I mean, he's he's got some intellectual, you know, candle power. Um, and why he traffics in this, I don't know, except that it probably, you know, tickles tickles the ratings. Well, yes, and and they and they are faced with some uh, with some headwinds, given the fact that you you have now they have competition on the crazy on the crazy wing, uh, from uh, from Newsmax and OAN. But this this one where you, you look at this and go, okay, does Tucker Tucker does does he really think the the viewers, his own viewers, are this stupid to be able to do this? I I don't I I don't know, but it's it is sad. Okay, so let's talk about a subject that look I. I know this is kind of this feels very inside baseball to me, but your your column about Neurotandon makes a really great point about hypocrisy and what our standards should be. It looks now like she's going to go down. They canceled her hearing. Uh, the White House is still sticking by her. But if she goes down, it's going to be because of mean tweets. So, Karen, I want you to just talk about this for for a moment, because. This is a Republican Party that has suddenly now decided that it is shocked, shocked outrage that somebody would tweet out insulting things. Well, first of all, there, there's this kind of ritual um, in the modern presidency where every transition seems to demand a human sacrifice. Some, some nomination of some presidential appointment has to be shot down. But usually it's because... There's some, you know, an issue of unpaid taxes or, you know, an undocumented household worker or some messiness in their private life near or, you know, that they're not qualified. None of those things can be said about near a tandem. 
um, what can be, you know, she has tweeted intemperately. But even if you look at her tweets, if you put it up against the kind of stuff you see on Twitter, it's pretty tame stuff. Um, so all of a sudden, all of these uh, senators who, you know, when, when Donald Trump would tweet bizarre conspiracy theories, they would go, oh, I haven't had time to read that, or that just went right over my head. Or in the case of Joe Manchin, um, was willing to vote to confirm Rick Grinnell as ambassador to Germany, despite the fact that he was a true Twitter troll. He was a troll. That's what he did. That's Rick Grinnell was a troll. But all of, a, all of a sudden, with near attendance, somehow this seems to matter. And again, I am not excusing the things that she tweeted, but in if you set them against the environment that she's in, they're not surprising. Um, and I just, I do, and I, I'm not somebody who like sees sexism under every rock, but in this case, I do wonder if Bill Crystal is right when he says, you know, hearing those kinds of things coming from a woman may sort of, you know, upset these older guys in the Senate more than hearing them come from a man. Well, this is the this is the remarkable thing. Um, the Grinnell, the, the fact that Joe Manchin voted for Grinnell, but is now voting against Neera Tandon is, is pretty extraordinary. I thought your example, which I had forgotten about that you included in your column about some of the ways that the current members of the Senate have, have tweeted Tom Cotton in November. Uh, tweeted about Neera Tandon, but also tweeted about uh, this, the, the you know, uh, Reverend Warnock, who's, who's now a United States senator. Neera Tandon's tweets read like a Reverend Warnock sermon filled with hate and guided by the woke left. Just as he is unfit to serve in the U.S. Senate, she is unfit to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. He is now serving with Reverend Warnock in the United States Senate. And so Tom Cotton is going to go, yeah, we cannot have people having mean tweets. You know, it, it, I um, I called both uh, Senator Cotton's office and Senator Warnock's office to find out whether, <laughs> you know, maybe there had been a private moment, a private apology or something, you know, w w welcome to the Senate. And uh, Senator Cotton's office said they would get back to me if they had anything to say on this, which they didn't. And uh, Reverend Senator Warnock's office said they they were not aware of any any sort of apology. And again, these people are now colleagues in the United States Senate from two states that aren't that far apart. So pretty, you know, you can assume that there will be issues that they might want to work together on. But but Tom Cotton has declared Warnock, you know, unfit to serve. This this sort of shift out in sort of the, the historical context of this, because I, I, I assume that, you know, it's sort of, you know, we could look through you know, sort of a gauzy lens at a kinder, gentler time when people in the United States Senate treated each other with respect and comedy and uh, there was collegiality. But the reality is there was once a time, right, where you would treat your colleagues with a certain level of respect. What we had, and, and they would have social relationships, they would have personal relationships, they would have mutual professional respect because they needed to work together. What you have now is really, is really extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's like, I, I don't want to do it back in the good old days, but back in the good old days, these guys would go on trips together. They would know each other. They would know their families. They would go out of their way 
not to cross certain bright red lines in attacking one another. And now you have a Senate in which you have a large number of senators who hate one another or who have said things that you're just not going to be able to walk back from. It is striking. And I think part of it is that, you know, senators don't spend as much time in Washington as they used to, which means they're just not around each other as as much as they used to be. I really trace this back to even it started to me in the mid 90s when a lot of House members started getting elected to the Senate and they brought with them this this sort of pugilistic culture of the House to the Senate. Um, but it is true that, you know, this, this idea that you may be opposed to somebody on this one issue, but you're going to need them next week on another issue uh, is is part of what has died. I mean, people just get into their camps and stay there. In fact, it used to be, I, I hate to sound like I'm talking about the good old days, yeah. but it used to be that there were such things as conservative Democrats and yes. liberal Republicans in the Senate. In fact, uh, National Journal used to do this survey where they found that if you looked at their voting records, 60% of the Senate fell in between the hmm. most liberal Republicans voting record and the most conservative Democrats. And when they in more recent years, there is not a single senator who falls into that sort of middle zone. And maybe that's part of the problem, too, that that the country has become more polarized and they represent you know, there, there aren't as many states anymore that are really up for grabs. Well, there's also the that's all true. But there's also the, the the number of senators who don't appear to be interested in legislation or legislating, uh, who see their jobs increasingly as just using the United States Senate seat just as a media platform or as a springboard to run for higher office. Uh, you see senators who think who seem to think that their job is just shit posting, you know, putting out uh, tweets and everything. I thought it was interesting. I mean, that, that that whole episode with Ted Cruz, we can dunk on Ted Cruz. But, you know, what is a, a senator supposed to do? Um, it, it, you know, the whole notion that you're part of government and you have a job to do, not just in legislating, but in making sure the government works, seems alien to some of these guys at times. Well, also, the Senate traditionally has not been a great launch pad to the no. presidency. Um, the, you know, between what, between John F. Kennedy and Barack Obama, not not mm -hmm. a single sitting senator was elected. Um, and the, the types of, the language of legislation, um, the, the sorts of, just everything about being a good legislator does not seem to sort of set you up for a terrific career as a national politician. So I think so many of these these guys are just sort of looking looking for the next job. Right. Well, I mean if you if you're interested in legislating, legislating involves sitting in a room and debating policy and then making compromises and taking votes and working with people to craft bills that will get the approval of a majority of the committee and then on the floor. I mean so that that's a that's a whole process that that requires, you know, not calling people names, not burning bridges and all of the, but that seems to have been lost. And then, so I think, you know, part of this is the, the Senate's, you know, ceasing to function as a le legislative body is also, is it a cause or is it an effect of this, this polarization? I, mean, I suppose you could go either way on that one, right? Chicken or egg. But I do think you're right. I think they, they 
don't have any muscle memory left up there. Well, that's right. I mean, a lot, and a lot of them just are not interesting. The one thing about Ted Cruz when he came in, this is this is so this is bizarre. When Ted Cruz came in, remember he would demagogue, uh, you know, the shutdown of the government, and it was very clear that he was more interested in showboating than in actually figuring out how do you get from point A to point B. And this was very frustrating to to folks. And this is back when when Ron Johnson was a reasonable, rational human being, and I we, we would speak, and he hated Ted Cruz. And he hated Ted Cruz because Ted Cruz could not identify what was the exit point? What was his end game? How do you get uh, legislation through? And this was he was going to shut the government down uh, until Obamacare was completely repealed, which was never going to happen. And so the other senators were looking at Ted Cruz and thinking, you're just not serious. You, you are not here to be a United States senator. But now it feels like that's kind of become the norm. I, I totally agree. And you're right. Ted Cruz was a unicorn when he got there. And he was elected, don't forget, I mean, I'm a Texan. So uh, he was elected as an insurgent. He beat the establishment favorite. And he essentially came to the Senate and behaved as Ted Cruz has always behaved, that it, it gave him a national platform. It gave him a reputation. Um, he would go home to Texas and at these Republican Party conventions would be treated like a conquering hero. Um, the thing yeah. is, the way politics works now, you get positive feedback for doing that. You do. And Rush Limbaugh loved that. He loved that uh, that filibuster that was headed nowhere. Um, and the other senators who tried to explain this is going nowhere got beaten up. They got and I, I, I can remember this, that Johnson, for example, was very outspokenly anti-Cruz back during that period and uh, called in was on the Mark Levin show. And Mark Levin beat the living crap out of Johnson for not pledging to keep the government shut down until until Barack Obama repealed Obamacare, which was never going to happen and would not accept the answer. There are just not enough votes. We are not going to be able to do this. This is not going to happen. That wasn't acceptable because the outrage machine just wanted the performance. They wanted the performance rather than the substance of legislation. Yeah, and that that is also, I think, just a. It, it, you have to look at our media culture too, for this. Um, that you know, it's the kind of thing that gives you a lot of attention, and not you know, being sitting in a conference committee and ironing out your differences over a obscure, you know, amendment to a piece of legislation doesn't do that. Exactly. So your book on Nancy Reagan doesn't come out till April, but can we just talk about it a little while? The triumph of Nancy Reagan, because oh, she, sure. she she has always, you know, been kind of a puzzle. I mean, people uh, have admired her, but um, but but also there was the there, there was a lot of anti Nancy Reagan sentiment out there. So first of all, tell me what made you want to write a book about Nancy Reagan? You know, interestingly, it was not my idea. It was Simon and Schuster's, and mm -hmm. they came to me, and it was a few months after she died in 2016, and said, "We're kind of interested in this. Would you like to do it?" And so, um, and at the time, it was early fall 2016, and I figured, well, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to be a pretty conventional president. Maybe I need some outside project to keep me interested. Yeah, because um, it's going to be boring. Right. <laughs> Nancy Reagan just turned out to be such a fascinating subject because you're right. She was somebody that I think the country never figured out and who was really 
way overdue for a reassessment. And she, you know, there were two schools of thought about her. One was that she was a, you know, dilettante, an airhead who didn't care about anything but fashion and China and redecorating the White House. And then the other was that she was, in the words of of William Sapphire, the New York Times columnist, an incipient Edith Wilson running the country Mm -hmm. secretly. What I did find is that um, she was such an essential partner to Ronald Reagan because her character sort of filled in the gaps of his. He was the perpetual optimist. He hired people. He trusted them. He was conflict averse. She was the opposite. She didn't trust anybody. Um, she There were you know, any number of people, most famously White House Chief of Staff Don Regan, who lost their jobs because she decided they shouldn't be around anymore. But I found some really important moments in both Ronald Reagan's political career and in his presidency where things would have come out very differently had her instincts about the people around him not been better than his. And Iran-Contra is a, a example in point. She quite literally, and I've documented this quite well, ran the rescue effort out of the mm. White House. She, In fact, she, um, when it comes time for Reagan to give what is possibly the most important speech of his presidency with regard to saving his presidency, which is uh, when he goes before the country and acknowledges that he, um, that he traded ar- arms for hostages, Nancy Reagan would not allow the, the West Wing to write that speech. She went out and got her own speechwriter because she just didn't trust Pat Buchanan was running the communications shop then. And she just didn't trust anybody over there. So in terms of consequential first ladies, where does she rank? You know, you mentioned Sapphire talking about Edith Wilson, who basically, you know, after Woodrow Wilson had his stroke, ran the country. So would Edith Wilson be the most consequential first lady? You know, they, the thing about first lady is it's it's a title without a job yeah, description. Right. So many of them, you know, they, they kind of find their own way. Eleanor Roosevelt was the conscience of FDR's mm-hmm. administration. In some ways, she was his legs. She could get out and see the country in ways that, that he couldn't. Uh, you see somebody like Hillary Clinton takes over a whole policy portfolio, healthcare, disastrously in, in the Clinton administration. Um, Nancy Reagan sort of fashioned herself as the guardian, and she was just incredibly consequential. Among other things, she was absolutely determined that there would be a warming of relations with the Soviet Union. That I opened the book, in fact, with George Shultz talking about how important she was in pushing that. And in fact, when Reagan gives his famous speech where she, where he declares that the Soviet Union is an evil empire. She went ballistic. And uh, I have Reagan's uh, longtime campaign manager, Stu Spencer, tells me about sitting in the White House presidents in the residence over dinner. And the Reagans are just going at it over the phrase evil empire. So she really did, uh, you know, she would say, oh, I don't get involved in policy. I get involved in people issues. But right. That was my impression, actually. Yeah, well, anybody can tell you people issues are policy. If you can determine who is in the room, 
And who's got the president's ear when an important decision is to made to be made? You you are determining policy. James Baker also told me she was an absolutely crucial ally for him uh, at a time when he was getting uh, just pounded by the ideological right. She she was important on some really key decisions. This is really interesting because I guess my impression was that she was consequential because she was very singularly focused on just being a defender of Ronald Reagan himself, that she was focused on him, interested in in the personnel, but didn't have the sense that, that I'm getting from you right now that she was that she was so involved in policy. So what was her core? Was she moderate? Was she liberal? What was what was what shaped her worldview? What was her worldview? Well, I don't honestly think I think she, I, I think she was probably a lot more moderate in a lot of ways than her husband was, but that wasn't what was driving her. It was her best, her, her thing was protecting her husband, uh, protecting him from situations where his own kind of generous instincts could have gotten him in trouble. Um, you know, protecting him from advisors she didn't trust because she thought they were so ideological as she once described Ed Meese, you know, somebody who would rather go over the cliff with the flag flying than take 50% of on an issue. Mm -hmm. So I don't think she was incredibly ideological herself. The reason she cared so much about the Soviet Union is that she did not want her husband to go down in history as a warmonger. She wanted him to go down in history as, as you know, a consequential president. And she hoped even that he might win the Nobel Peace Prize. You, and you, uh, you worked very closely with the Reagan Library folks on this book. So this is is this is this an authorized biography? Is I mean, this is this has been described. I've, I've read a number of review, reviews describing this is the definitive biography of of Nancy Reagan, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's I worked closely with them, but no, uh, they they did not. Nobody tried to sort of push me one way or the other. I just tried to follow the facts where they led me. But it's interesting working with a presidential library. There is a whole lot of stuff that's in the public realm, but there's a lot of stuff that, you know, the foundation can decide whether they're going to let you see it or not. And it took me a couple of years before they started showing me some of that stuff. And that was fascinating. It's, it's the personal stuff. The, I, I found one file box where there were a bunch of letters in there that, and it was in the personal files, that, you know, I found a letter that Ronald Reagan's mother had written in pencil in 1911. I found a letter that Reagan had written to Nancy Reagan's father as he was on his deathbed. He was an atheist. And Ronald Reagan is pleading with him to accept Christ before he dies. And it's a four-page handwritten distillation of Ronald Reagan's own religious beliefs that is so powerful. And it was just sort of filed kind of randomly in this box with other stuff. You know, one of the interesting moments that I remember with the uh, reevaluation of, of Reagan uh, was when they found a lot of the things that he had written in his own hand, the fact that he had written many of his radio broadcasts and his columns himself. He didn't use a staffer. And you got a sense that, that he was perhaps more thoughtful, more articulate than he was given credit for. I think that there was a tendency to think of him as this amiable dunce. And then when people found Reagan, I guess the book was called Reagan in His Own Hand. You realize that uh, that, that he actually was uh, he was a skilled writer. 
and he he was one of the few presidents who actually kept diaries almost daily of his presidency. But the other thing people don't realize about Ronald Reagan, because he had such a gift at connecting with the country, is that he was in his heart a loner. I mean, he would. I mean, Nancy Reagan was really the only person in the world to whom he was personally close. He would rather be out on the ranch by himself. And it was really important. The other role she played was that she really built the the kind of a lot of the scaffolding for his rise. Uh, Yes, there was the kitchen cabinet, but it was it was really Nancy Reagan who took care of those relationships or. It was very important to her that he be respected in the most conventional sense by the establishment. So she was constantly building bridges that, you know, he, he, you know, given his druthers probably wouldn't have been all that interested in. So I'm interested in getting your take on this because uh, there are many folks on the left who think of Trump as the logical continuation of Reaganism. Many of us feel that it's a rather dramatic break from Reaganism. So, what do, what do you see? What is, what is the what is the dotted line that leads from Ronald and Nancy Reagan to Donald and Melania Trump? I don't buy that. Um, Reagan was such a congenital optimist. He was constantly, uh, you know, mourning in America. Um, he was also somebody who believed in putting processes into work. The the decision making was so different. I think a lot of people, they they sort of point to things that, you know, perhaps his record on race and other things and say, well, that's what gave us Trump. But that really ignores a lot of other things that happened in between, including the rise of Newt Gingrich in Congress and what that brought in, the Tea Party movement. It's not just a leap from 1980 to 2016. A, a politics evolved rather dramatically, and people people forget that you didn't have a conservative talk radio or Fox News during the Reagan administration. Rush Limbaugh was really not on the air until the the final days of of that administration. I also used to uh, in the early days of, of Trump. I used to read the uh his uh, ronald reagan's farewell speech where he talked about america being the shining city on the hill and if you know if there must be you know doors let them be high and um and and asked whether anyone could imagine those words being spoken by donald trump because they struck me as exactly the polar opposite in mood and vision of the country all of that that you know it's easy and i think it's kind of lazy thinking somehow to think that uh well yeah trump trump has just updated reaganism because i just don't think that's true and Ronald Reagan spent the first six years of his presidency working on a massive immigration bill that, you know, that offered amnesty to millions of people. Um, and he was happy to call it amnesty. He would come, you know, he he thought that the fact that so many people want to be Americans uh, was a sign of this country's greatness. I also have a hard time imagining um, Ronald Reagan having the relationship with the uh, the, uh, the this any any Soviet leader that uh, that Donald Trump had with Vladimir Putin. So this book comes out in the middle of April, uh, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. It does. It does. Karen Tumulty, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being so generous with your time. I appreciated the invitation. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. <laughs>